Well, good morning, everyone. Recording in progress. Thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, we are now beginning the second installment of our three-part series on the presidency of Harry S. Truman, our nation's 33rd president. Joining us today to talk specifically about President Truman's foreign policy, we are pleased to welcome Mark Adams, who is the Director of Education at the Harry S. Truman Library and Museum in Independence, Missouri. He served in this position since 1997, and before that, Mr. Adams served as the education coordinator for the Kansas Museum of History. He holds an undergraduate degree from the University of Wolverhampton and a graduate degree in history from the University of Liverpool. With that, please join me in welcoming Mark Adams. Thank you for, so much for joining us this morning. Thank you, and thank you for the introduction, and uh, thank you, everybody, for joining us, and I really appreciate the invitation to speak and uh, following on from my director last week on President Truman's domestic policy, we're going to focus on a couple of aspects of Truman's foreign policy. We are, obviously, we cannot cover everything, but I thought it was timely because next month in March of this year is the 75, 75th anniversary of the Truman Doctrine, which many people are familiar with. So we're going to focus this morning on the Truman Doctrine and the Marshall Plan that follows it as kind of an acknowledgement of that 75th anniversary. And it's very compelling today because it looks very similar uh, some of the crises that Truman's faced uh, to what President Biden faces with the situation with Russia and Ukraine today. So I think you might see some parallels there. So because of the anniversary and because of what's going on in the world, we thought that would be a good subject to, to look at in depth this morning. So let me share my screen and we'll begin the presentation. And again, thank you for joining us. And here we go. And you should be able to see the screen there. And I'll get that full screen here in a moment. Just need to move this out the way. You know, these bars always end up in your way, so you can't do what you want to do. There we go. And you should be able to see that full screen. And so we're going to be looking at the Truman Doctrine and the Marshall Plan this morning. And there's some images there we're going to see a little bit later on in the presentation. So we're going to go... What we're going to do is give some background, kind of give some context to the situation that Truman faced in 1947, kind of look at what's going on in the world after World War II, some of the key people like George Kennan, who we're going to learn about, some of the other crises that are happening around the world, and then look at the Truman Doctrine, Marshall Plan, and so forth. And then we're definitely going to have a type of questions at the end. So first to back up, and Dr. Graham probably covered this a little bit uh, last week, but just as a quick reminder, in April, April 12th specifically, of 1945, uh, Vice President Truman becomes President Truman on the day of the death of FDR. And he was only Vice President for 82 days. And there we see the kind of grim, somber photograph of Truman taking the oath of office with his wife, Bess, right there in the center of the photograph as he has his hand on the Bible swearing again. So he's only been vice president 82 days, and now um, he's the most powerful man in the world, as we know, at that time. And then in May, the very following month, just three weeks later, on May the 8th, uh, Germany surrenders uh, in World War II, 
at the end of World War II. War is still going on in Asia, of course. And this just happens to be Harry Truman's birthday on, on May the 8th. And you see some quotes there about, uh, we've rid Hitler of the, rid the world of Hitler, and now we're going to you know, bring our troops home, and the war in Europe anyway has ended, which is going to, of course, play into all of his foreign policy that we're going to be looking at, that the war there in Europe has ended. And then in July, he's in Germany, and he's at the Potsdam Conference, and you probably recognize the two, the two people flanking him there, uh, Stalin on our right, and then Winston Churchill on our left. And uh, we're going to talk more about Winston Churchill a little bit later on with the Iron Curtain speech. But this is just that he's coming to office in April. Here we are in the summer, July 1945. He's meeting with the world leaders, the big three at the conference. And while he's there, although it's not the focus of our presentation today, while he's in Germany at the Potsdam Conference, we have the very first successful test of the atomic bomb in New Mexico. So we learn about that while he's there. And of course, at this conference, he's wrestling with Stalin about what to do in Europe and with Churchill about whether we should have reparations, what the country boundary should look like, who should be in control were, what should do with Germany, things like that. And so one of the things that happens shortly after the Potsdam Conference, some of it's already happening before the conference is even over, is all of these countries over 1945, 1946, 1947, and even into 1948, is the Soviets are taking over these parts of Eastern Europe. And you can see the countries listed there, uh, Albania, Bulgaria, East Germany, Romania, Poland, Hungary, Czechoslovakia. So each of those is essentially becoming a puppet state to Stalin. And this is of huge concern to Truman, in 1945 at the Potsdam Conference, but he really gets nowhere with his negotiations. Um, there's a couple of things we'll look at about this, about the philosophy of the United States, the philosophy of the Soviet Union in terms of what they're trying to achieve at that time. So that's kind of one of the things Truman is concerned about as there's growing tension between these allies. And then you can see on this map um, some of the things that are... Um, taking place. So we've got the Potsdam Conference at the top of the map there, August, July to August 1945. The Allies have withdrawn from Italy by December of 1945. Uh, and also in December on the right side of the map, the Soviets are backing separatists in Iran. In August, of course, the atomic bomb is dropped in Japan. France is withdrawing from Syria. So all of these things are happening all over Europe, the Middle East, and even in, in Asia as well. As we know, Truman does drop the atomic bomb in August, and then we have the Japanese surrender. So the World War II is completely over, but now there's a lot of tension between the Soviets and the Allies. So one of the people that's really important in this story, and you really can't tell the, the story of the Cold War, and specifically Truman's relationship with the Soviet Union and the Truman Doctrine, is George Kennan. He's working in Moscow in the embassy there, and he's asked to uh, let the Truman administration, let the cabinet know what is really going on uh, in the Soviet Union. It's a secretive society. We don't really know what's going on. And he ends up sending this very famous telegram 
called the long telegram and it's because it's 8,000 words long. So that's one of the reasons it has the name. And he, it, what it tells you, and this is in February of 1946, so very early in the year, <clears throat> is at that point, there's really no Cold War. There's some tension, but the Cold War really hasn't begun. The United States doesn't really understand uh, what, the, what the Soviets are thinking at that time. So he, he sends his telegram, and he really says that um, there's no way that the Soviets are going to peacefully coexist. They're, they're just, there's some paranoia there. Um, there's, um, uh, they're, they're wanting to spread communism. And um, his policy recommendation, let's put it that way, is the USA is actually stronger. They come out of World War II stronger. And, they, and he feels like the USA can contain this. So rather than confront it head on, just kind of draw a circle around it and say, let's just contain this and not let it spread any further. So that's just where the idea of this policy that we've heard about ever since is the idea of containment. So stop it spreading, but you can't really go in. Otherwise, it's going to be World War III. And one of Truman's main goals was to avoid World War III in, in a number of circumstances. And then the response to that, and I think this is really important, people often forget this part. In high school textbooks and things, they often don't really reckon, really talk about the response. But the response from the Soviet Union is that the USA is actually the threat. You know, They're the ones that have come out of World War II the strongest, and the, and the Soviet Union feels like it needs a buffer zone between themselves and the European allies. And if you look at the history there of World War I and World War II and German invasion in both cases, the USSR feels like that's a reasonable policy to have a buffer zone. And so they're using these satellite uh, countries to create a buffer zone to protect themselves. So just to get the sense of their perspective. Okay. So this kind of accelerates these countries that I mentioned to being taken over. Whoops, I skipped that. Sorry. So in uh, March of 1946, actually in Missouri, and Truman is uh, with Winston Churchill. And now Winston Churchill is no longer prime minister. Um, during the Potsdam Conference, he actually uh, is defeated uh, in the British general election. And so he's not prime minister at this point in 1946, but he comes to Missouri, he meets with Harry Truman, and then he goes to Fulton, Missouri on the train, and he makes this speech that I'm sure you're very, very familiar with. And we've got this famous line from Stettin in the Baltic to Trias in the Adriatic, an iron curtain has descended across the continent. And it's best represented, I feel, in this map. So you can see the orange would be the... Um, Soviet-influenced areas, and then the gray as the, as the allies, uh, to the, for the most part. Uh, and then you can see the black line, which is the Iron Curtain that um, Winston Churchill talks about. And there's a photograph of Churchill and Truman together in Missouri um, when he made that speech in, in March of 1946. So this is, this is kind of accelerating... Um, this Cold War, the rhetoric is building up between the two sides. Um, and it's probably easier for Churchill to say 
because he's not a world leader at the time, if that makes sense. Um, so we're getting closer. There's crisis going on in Iran and Greece and Turkey, and we're going to talk about each of those here. So the things are accelerating. You can get a sense of this accelerating of the tensions from the Potsdam Conference forward. And there's just the map there to show you where Iran and Turkey. Greece is a little bit off the map, but just to the west of Turkey, you can kind of see the last letters of Greece and some of those Greek islands just immediately to the, to the west of Turkey there and just south of Bulgaria, up in the top left. So in Iran, there was some uh, negotiations about Iran during the Potsdam Conference. And I mentioned the Potsdam Conference earlier. And Stalin objected to Ch Churchill's proposal for everybody to withdraw. The United States and the UK did withdraw their forces, as, the, as they had all agreed, but the Soviets decided to stay. Uh, so that began some tension there because they didn't withdraw as promised. In Greece, you know, the British government um, was basically bankrupt at the end of World War II. They were withdrawing not only from the colonies around the world, but also any other areas that they had been financially supporting before the war and during the war. So they're, they're giving warning in December um, that they were going to be pulling out and then in in uh, late February, they authorized that, so we're no longer able to support uh, the Greeks. And so it was a vacuum situation that the United States under Truman is going to step into that gap. And then at the same time, they're worried about Turkey. Um, and you can see the map there of Turkey and then Istanbul and the, um, the straits there that were so important to the Soviet Navy to get access to the Mediterranean. And so there's issues there, too, in all three of those countries. And I'm going through this fairly quickly because of time. And so those are all happening all at the same time. So Truman decides with his advisors, Dean Acheson and others, that he's going to, he's going to support the Greeks and the Turks. Uh, one of the things he's most very concerned about is the spread of communism, as we talked about before, this idea of containment. And so he goes to joint session of Congress. As I mentioned, next month is the 75th anniversary. Um, as I mentioned, the British had said they're going to, in February 21st, they said they were going to pull out. And he gets together with uh, the congressional delegation. And this is where Truman gets a lot of credit for his bipartisanship role. He's actually facing a minority uh, in Congress at that time uh, in the midterm elections. Um, the Republicans had taken over Congress. And so he goes to Arthur Vandenberg, Republican, and tells him what he wants to do. But Vandenberg says, and this is the quote at the end, you need to scare the hell out of the American people. And what he means by that is you need to scare the people so you can get this money authorized and get people's support for it because it's not going to be cheap. And so this is a photograph from that speech that he gives on March the 12th. And in that, just to go into a little bit of detail of that, he really emphasizes Greece more than anything. He feels like um, he can appeal to people's sympathies to the Greeks. The Turk Turkey had been neutral in, for the most part in World War II, uh, and so he felt like appealing to, the, to help the Greeks was going to be um, more approachable and their, their history of democracy and so forth. But this is where they start to talk about the domino theory for the first time. 
that if we lose this country, then it's going to topple to the next and topple to the next. And they're also very concerned about the Soviets having access to the Mediterranean. So he puts this forward in a proposal, and this famous line, uh, he says, I believe that it must be the policy of the United States to support the free peoples who are resisting attempted subjugation by armed minorities or outside pressure. So this becomes the policy that anywhere in the world, not just Greece and Turkey, anywhere in the world, uh, Truman says the United States will support people who are being, you know, subjugated by armed minorities or outside pressures. Now, in the speech itself, he mentions the word communism numerous times, but he never actually mentions the name Soviet Union or Russia or USSR. He doesn't men- mention them by name one time in the speech, but he does mention the word communism uh, 12, 13, 14 times, something like that. So it's kind of an interesting approach that he takes. Uh, this is a letter to his wife, Bess Wallace. We're very lucky at our, the Truman Library. We've got more than 1,300 letters that he writes to Bess Wallace Truman. And this is where he says, and I've got the transcript because his writing isn't always the easiest to read, but I've bolded the important part here. I hope the result of the message will be for world peace. So this is right after the message. It's a terrific step to take and one I've been worrying about ever since Marshall took over the State Department. Our very first conversation was what to do about Russia and China, Korea and the Near East. As far as I've seen the papers, there's been a few favorable reception, except by the crackpots. (laughs) Truman never minced his words. It was pleasing the way the Congress reacted. Don't you think it was nearly unanimous? And Congress did support him and they passed the legislation. There was mostly positive reaction. But there were some concerns. People were saying, well, the Greek government was not democratic. That Turkey was not a democracy and had been neutral for World War II. We bypassed the United Nations. What about China? And then some of the quotes from some of the um, media, it was like a bolt of lightning. It hit the popularity jackpot. And Newsweek is an interesting one. If words could shape the future of nations, these unquestionably would. And it does become the policy for the United States for quite some time. So the aid does pass. Um, They're able to pass that, uh, even though they're facing a a minority, you know, of Democrats in the the Senate and in the House. Uh, Truman does get the legislations passed and signed by May the 15th, and they get a $400 million appropriation to help Greece and Turkey in particular. So let's move on very quickly. I know we've got about 10 minutes or so, 15 minutes at the outside. Because the Marshall Plan is so closely connected, you really can't talk one without the other. It's named after George Marshall. We'll get into that a little bit. The one thing to be clear on is because Truman, when he was at the Potsdam Conference, had toured around Germany while he was there and saw the destruction of Germany. Marshall, of course, had been in Europe uh, during World War II and seen the destruction also, and many of his advisors, State Department and others, talked not just about the destruction of Germany, but all over Europe. And calls were coming in from France and the UK and other European countries um, as the, they were suffering from World War II, not just in terms of the destruction, but also unemployment and hunger and housing shortages, you know, displaced persons roaming around. Europe, it was, Europe was in such a terrible situation after the war was over. 
By the time we get to George Marshall's um, speech at Harvard University in June of 1947, so just a month after the Truman Doctrine legislation was passed, now they're wanting to see what can we do economically to help these countries. So Marshall said, we want to set up this European recovery program. It becomes known as the Marshall Plan. That was Truman's idea. He thought it would more chance of getting support because Marshall was such a popular figure. And Truman admired uh, Marshall uh, more than any other man in the world, really. So they had two main goals here. One was to prevent the spread of communism. So going back to what we talked about before, this idea of containment. So not necessarily taking on communism, but just stopping it spreading. And then to stabilize the international world with a free market, uh, democracies. There's no denying that there's some kind of economic imperialism here, that, that they're wanting to bolster up these European countries with through an American sphere of influence that was not hidden, um, but certainly through economic support rather than military, military support. The European reaction was very strong. They, they were all on board. They wanted to immediately set up the logistics of this and how it's going to be set up. And all of the countries that were invited came to Paris in July of 1947. So this is happening very quickly, you know, just a month after Marshall's speech to get together, to try and figure out how they're going to put this together and, um, you know, make this work. The Soviets are invited. They're invited and, but they um, decide not to come. And you'll see in a map a little bit, in a little bit, that uh, how the Eastern European countries were had to reject the proposals. And then you see this great political cartoon, big question mark, can we afford to help Europe? Can we afford not to help Europe? Because the economy in Europe is obviously going to affect the economy in the United States and around the world. And then there was some worry that if you let these countries continue to deteriorate, they're going to turn to communism and maybe turn to the Soviets. So again, we got a letter from Truman to his wife, this time in September. So after this summer of negotiating with the different countries, the 16 countries in Paris. And so when he mentions Greece and Turkey, so he says, if we withdraw from Greece and Turkey and prepare for war. It just must not happen. So he's really not wanting to abandon Greece and Turkey. And then he says to feed France and Italy this winter, will cost 580 million, the Marshall Plan, 16.5 billion. And he says the 16.5 is for a four-year period and is for peace. A Russian war would cost us 400 billion in untold lives, mostly civilian. So I must do what I can. I shouldn't write you this stuff, but you should know what I've been facing since Potsdam. So he refers back to our first slide there about the Potsdam conference and where he's been planning and trying to figure out solutions to this for the last two years, because this is you know, two years on from the Potsdam Conference. So it's really interesting. He ties this all together to his wife in this letter. It's a fascinating letter. And you can see he's doing the math in terms of the economy and how much it's going to cost, both in money and in lives, if they end up with a Russian war, or how they can feed the people and what the Marshall Plan is really going to cost in dollars. And so... As they put this assistance together, it, it's passed in 1948. Um, it was named, as I mentioned, for George Marshall because of his role in World War II and in, 
And he had become the Secretary of State in the early part of 1947 in January, actually, the day after Truman's State of the Union address. He becomes the Secretary of State at that time. And later on, he ends up being Secretary of Defense. And because of the Marshall Plan primarily, but also some of his other works, in 1953, he actually wins the Nobel Peace Prize. This is the first professional soldier to receive that, which is really remarkable honor for his career. And you can sense the high esteem that he's held, not just in the United States, but across the world. And it's one of the reasons I mentioned that Truman put Marshall's name on this plan. So it is passed, and the money is offered, as I mentioned before. This is the map I was talking about. It's offered to the Eastern Europe, but Stalin uh, rejects it and says that can't happen. And you see the, the shades of orange the, were the countries that received the most of the darker shade of orange. So Great Britain and France are at the high end of that, and then you see the other colors in between, Italy and the Netherlands and West Germany, and then the Scandinavian countries, Portugal, Greece, Turkey, Iceland. But as I mentioned, the the Soviet bloc was not allowed. They were offered the money, but they were not allowed to take it. Okay. Um, So some of the the Soviet response to this is important to consider. It's always important to look at both sides and to see what they're thinking. And so I mentioned this before, that the Soviets thought this was what they called dollar imperialism, so that it's economic weight is that they're using economic weight instead of tanks, right? And so they didn't allow the Eastern Bloc to apply for the Marshall aid money. And so they set up the common form, the Communist Information Bureau, um, to build heavy industry and to create a tra- trade network between those communist countries. And it has its Molotov plan. That's the Soviet foreign minister that Truman had met actually at Potsdam, a financial aid to help the Eastern Bloc countries. So they kind of retaliate with their own policies, their own, their own plan, so to speak. And so over the next four years, Marshall Plan uh, gets from Congress $13.3 billion for European recovery. And then, of course, the United States is able to trade more readily. They've got allies in those nations, friendly ties, friendship between the, between the two has built up because of this. Um, In the short run, um, it definitely um, helped the situation in the long, you know, help the short-term economy and so forth. But it also led to kind of political independence for many of those countries. They were no longer under threat. If you think about it this way, the countries are now more stable. And so the governments were not as, uh, under fire and the threat of communism takeover in countries like Italy and in France, which was a certainly an issue in those two countries in particular. Um, and it led to lots of other um, organizations and groups. Most notably, it led to the formation of NATO, which we see in the forefront today, being asked for support in Ukraine. And so, and then also, and then the European Union as well. As you can see, these countries kind of grouping together and forming these economic alliances and economic trade agreements. And this is a great poster um, where you see all the country's flags and they're all pulling together um, in this crisis. We'll wrap things up here just to show you kind of how things develop now. The Cold War has kind of accelerated. You see the Truman Doctrine on the left 
and then common form on the right, you see the Marshall Plan. And so we see the area of politics. We see the area of economics with Comic-Con on the Soviet side. NATO, of course, is the corresponding organization which comes up in 1955. We haven't mentioned that yet, is the Warsaw Pact. So you see suddenly in politics and economics and military a divide between the United States and its allies and the Soviets and the Eastern Bloc. So I thought this graphic represents that very well. So just some, to wrap up, looking at these two policies, kind of um, the idea that American isolationism, which had existed between World War I and World War II, that American foreign policy is gone. Uh, instead, it's, con it's um, much more containment of communism. The idea of rebuilding your enemy, you compare that to the end of World War I when Germany faced reparations. Now, you know, one of the United States' biggest allies is, in fact, West Germany. And the Marshall Plan itself has been recognized since then as one of the greatest humanitarian efforts the world has ever seen. And it's also kind of legitimized the concept of U.S. foreign aid, and U.S. aid is a outgrowth of that. But on the flip side, of course, this idea of accusations of economic imperialism, of influencing countries using the dollar, uh, not so much military, but certainly there's troops there too still in Europe, certainly in Germany as well. And then just to point at some of the resources, I can share this with, with your staff there. Of the, there's the Truman Doctrine speech. We have clips of that on our YouTube channel. We have a number of the primary source documents, letters to his wife and drafts of speeches and so forth on the Truman Doctrine and on the Marshall Plan, all digitized on our website that you can look at. TrumanLibrary.gov is our website. And I will stop there and stop my screen share and uh, be ready to answer questions. That's terrific. Right, right on time. <laughs> yeah, just perfect. Thank you so much. <laughs> well, there, you prompted lots of questions, so let me start. So could you talk a little bit about the connection, if you see one, between Yalta and Potsdam? Could it be argued that FDR kind of boxed Truman in by essentially ceding a sphere of influence in Eastern Europe to Stalin at, at Yalta? Yeah, some of it, you're right. It, he inherited a lot of that. Those, a lot of those agreements had been made at Yalta. And what's incredible about that, really, is you have a different role for the, prime, the vice president then. But, you know, when, when FDR goes to Yalta, Truman is vice president, and he doesn't take him. He doesn't invite him to go, um, even though he's vice president. Um, now, what he does do, though, uh, James Burns, who does go with FDR and is in Truman's cabinet, he relies on Burns to kind of relay, you know, once Truman becomes president and FDR has died and he obviously can't tap into FDR's mind, he goes to James Burns and says, you know, what was this discussion really about? What was, what was FDR trying to do? You know, so he's able to, and then Henry Stimson, who's the Secretary of War, uh, who's the one that tells Truman about um, the Manhattan Project, first person to tell him about that. He's able to rely on them, but to a certain degree, he is boxed in. Truman does go with some goals to to kind of put his own imprint in Potsdam, but he's a, Stalin is just is not going to shift. It's interesting, though, when Truman first gets there, I didn't feature this letter because we weren't really talking about the Potsdam Conference in general, but one of his earliest letters to his wife, Bess, is he says, I like Stalin, I can deal with him. 
And then very quickly that changes because <laughs> he, when he tries to negotiate, Truman gets really frustrated because there's, there's no negotiating and no compromising with Stalin. And he figured that out pretty quickly. The other thing I should mention is because Churchill is the, Churchill has seen this already. And Churchill is telling Truman, you're not going to get anything out of him. You're kind of being naive. So the first week, first weeks, probably first three or four days, Truman is a little bit naive and he thinks he can get Stalin, just like he's used to negotiating kind of back in his county politician days, he can negotiate something or with labor unions and strikes. And, but there's just no compromise there. And Stalin's like, I, you know, I've got my troops there. I'm not moving them. You know, what are you going to do? Kind of, he's got all the cards. Now it's interesting because Truman does say that, you know, um, he felt like he could work with him, but then towards the end of the conference, he realizes that there's not much movement, but his main goal actually there was to get Stalin to agree to join the war against Japan. And he does convince him to do that. So he feels pretty good when he's coming home because he's got Stalin coming in against Japan in the north, and he's got the atomic bomb ready to go, which they drop before he gets home. He's actually uh, on the ship sailing back to the United States when that takes place in early August. So he feels like he's got what he wanted. His main thing there is, Stalin's going to come in. I'm going to drop the bomb. That's going to accelerate the surrender. So, but in terms of Europe, that's just going to be an ongoing struggle. And Churchill is the one that's warned him most about that. So you're right. He, to a certain degree, he was boxed in. But honestly, I'm not really sure what FDR could have done differently either. The troops are already there in, in February of 1945. Long-winded answer. I apologize. No, no, no. Terrific. So could you talk a little bit about the Soviets acquiring their own nuclear weapons and establishing mutual assured destruction and the degree to which that really required the United States to have a policy of containment rather than rollback? Right, right. Because that had happened um, in the late part of 1946. We learned that the Soviets have successfully um, tested their own weaponry. So there's certainly that idea that we can't just dominate them with an atomic bomb. And so that's part of it because that is, it's happened after the Iron Curtain speech, but it's before the Truman Doctrine. It's just to put those in kind of a parallel. Um, so that, you know, when Churchill makes his Iron Curtain speech, um, the Soviets don't have the weapon. Then by the time Truman authorizes the Truman Doctrine speech in March, the following year, they've, they've, they've tested that in, in uh, I think it's November or December of 46 that the United States finds out about it. So that certainly has, you know, certainly has a, play there but i don't think truman even if even if the soviets did had not successfully tested i don't think truman would have tried to roll back um his main goal and i think this comes we were talking before the program clark i think this comes back to his time as a soldier in world war one he was very reluctant to put soldiers on the ground he says his most difficult decision was actually not the atomic bomb but the korean war because he had to put soldiers on the ground, and he'd done that. He's the only president that served in combat in World War One, and he'd seen what the front looked like, and he was very, very reluctant to put men on the ground. And, and he, one of his major tenets of his foreign policy was to avoid World War Three. So trying to roll back Soviet communism more than likely would have, would have led to World War Three. And on that point, what prompted him then to make the decision to enter the Korean War, given his reluctance to right. doing combat generally? Right. And so this comes back to this idea of containment. He was very concerned that this North Korean invasion 
was going to then lead to the spread of communism in Asia, particularly in Japan. When you look at the map, uh, the Japanese were the next under threat. And of course, since the end of World War II, we've been very much trying to rebuild Japan as an ally, uh, really trying to stop the spread of communism. And the, the, the mistake I think he makes there is he doesn't go through Congress. It's, it's good to go through um, the United Nations, but they did not um, go through Congress for that. So that gets him in trouble later with the steel crisis and things like that. Yeah. And could you talk a little bit about the so-called loss of China? This was happening during this period. Right. So that's, that was Marshall was, was um, sent to China to try and stop that. I think that was never going to happen. It was again, a little bit naive. Um, the idea that, um, that Marshall could kind of negotiate that Truman felt like that um, the Chinese leadership before the revolution was very weak and um, was not helped by that. Um, and so Marshall is kind of accused of, of failing to save China. Um, and so, but I think, I don't think there was much to be done in terms of diplomacy though. That was almost inevitable. They kind of ignored China for too long. I think the attention had all been on Soviet Union that, that backfires on Truman in the Korean War because the Chinese, of course, um, get involved there after the after they pushed ahead of the 38th parallel. Right. You talked about this implicitly, but just to spend a bit of time on it, the fact that President Roosevelt did not tell Truman about the atomic bomb, that he had right. essentially no training in foreign policy. Could you elaborate on that? Yeah, it's really it, one of the things that the two pieces that I look at one is the role of the vice president is very, very different. Uh, and you only have to look at the fact in 1945, when Truman comes in with that first photo, April 12th, 1945, Truman becomes president. So my question to high school students at that point is who's the vice president now that Truman is the president? There isn't one. And there isn't one until 1948. Really, and technically, not till January of 1949 when they do the inauguration. Um, Alban Barkley is Truman's running mate in that 48 election, but Truman does not even have a vice president from April 1945 until January of 1949. That in itself tells you about the role of the vice president. They didn't have one for that long. The other part of it is FDR had his very close circle of advisors all the way into his fourth term, and that never really included any of his vice presidents. He had his close circle of advisors who gave him advice, very small group, and that was it. No one else was inside that inner circle. So there's two factors there. The role of the vice president very different. And then FDR's leadership style was not really to share everything with the cabinet, but just his closest circle of advisors. Some of that, you know, with World War II is secrecy and, and, um, and things like that. But, other, but even before World War II, that was just the way FDR operated with a very small group of advisors. And indeed, he said upon the death of FDR and becoming president, I felt as if the sun and the moon and the stars had all fallen on me. That's right. And and he says, and the other part of that is, he says to Eleanor Roosevelt, first lady, you know, is there anything I can do for you? You know, her husband's just died. And she said, Harry, you're the one that's in trouble now. <laughs> <laughs> you're the one that needs the help, not me. And so he really, you know, that was kind of his nature. But yeah, he did feel like, 
the moon and the stars and everything had all fallen in on him at that time is the quote. Yeah, he had all the responsibilities of the world because, of course, war is still going on in Europe, war is going on in Asia, lots of domestic issues to deal with, just facing all these crises all over the world. Was uh, with, as you said, very little preparation or background. You mentioned Marshall several times. Uh, yeah. Understand? Can you talk a little bit about Atchison's role in Truman's foreign policy and the relationship? Absolutely. And they and uh, it's interesting because he really admires Marshall as a, as a as a as from what he's done and so on. But I think Atchison was a closer colleague, um, a closer f- personal friend. Uh, we have the correspondence between the two of them. Some of those have been published in a couple of different volumes. The relationship with Atchison, and it carries on after the presidency. They continue to write to one another. But they're very different backgrounds. Um, but they really are connected, and they had a very, very close personal relationship. Atchison really probably doesn't get the credit that he deserves for the Truman Doctrine policies and speeches. He wrote some of the early drafts. For that, um, I forget exactly. Truman was away that weekend. I can't remember if he was in Key West or somebody else, somewhere else. But Atchison gets the news first about the British withdrawal in February of '47, and him and his staff are drafting things so that when Truman gets back, they can show him where they're at with the their thinking. And then Truman weighs in, and they they fine tune it. But he doesn't depart from what Atchison is suggesting. Um, Atchison does get in a little bit of trouble over the Korean War because he kind of sends some mixed messages about the circle of influence and he doesn't include Korea in that, like the, mm. the areas we're going to protect. But that's about the only blip that I've found where Truman was upset about him and he just corrects it himself and I think at a press conference or something later. But, but the difference I mentioned is that there were very much more real friendship between the two, whereas I think with Marshall it was more a working relationship and they really admired Marshall. But it was almost that he had him so much on a pedestal, he couldn't really become a real close friend. Uh, whereas Atchison, although they didn't necessarily have, they had very, very different backgrounds. They found a connection. Um, their wives were close as well and things like that. So they had family connection as well. And so they just became very close personal friends and exchanged many letters back and forth. We've got two minutes. So final question. We're very much living, one could argue, Still, in, Fre- in President Truman's foreign policy, especially given what, as you said earlier, is going on now with regard to NATO and Russia and Ukraine, could you just elaborate a little bit on that? As yeah, it's interesting. There was a, I mean, a couple of the hot articles I've seen recently where they're, they're saying, you know, this Biden, Biden, Biden's policy towards the Russians right now is, is kind of maybe reminiscent of Truman in that, imp- not necessarily that they have the same policy. We, we yet to see that, really, but but in terms of his options, is he just going to try and contain the Russians on the Ukraine border? Is he? You mentioned the word rollback. Do they want to roll that back and you know give Ukraine a buffer? Uh, you know, or is it um, more like 1945, 1946, and Albania and and Poland and Romania just let them go? So they've got those similar options that Truman and FDR faced of, do you try to contain that? Do you try to roll it back? Do you let certain countries go, but where do you draw the line? Where's the line in the sand? So he faces similar options and a number of uh, 
news media and magazine, political magazines have kind of made this comparison to Biden's policy towards, you know, making similarities or, or differences towards the Truman Doctrine. Certainly, it's hard not to study the Truman Doctrine and see it in the light of today. Um, and, of course, it's different, but, you know, that's what history is for. We learn our lessons and we kind of say, well, what can we learn from Truman Doctrine policy? Can we use that today as we look at the uh, situation that Biden faces and, and, and the allies? Because NATO is now seemingly getting involved. Um, how can that how can that work? And one of the strategies has been, you know, through ec- economic, whether it's economic sanctions or cutting off supply lines and things like that. There's there's other options other than military, whether it's diplomacy, whether it's economics, whether it is, you know, to, to build up troops in, in retaliation. There's all of these options. Nobody really knows which is the best, right? And um, so it, there's a lot of parallels there. But until, you know, this crisis is unfolding day by day in front of us, uh, it's hard to know um, which action each side will take. And I think that's very similar to, like, I didn't touch on it really, but, like, Truman and the Berlin Airlift, you know, Stalin had encircled West Berlin. Truman could have reacted militarily, but he sent an economic and an airlift of supplies rather than tanks, which was an option. So a lot of these crises have a history, and we can kind of maybe learn from those, as, as and hopefully our leadership in Washington, D.C. can learn from those to maybe inform them to make the best decision. Indeed so. Mark Adams, thank you so much for being with us. This was thank, terrific. Thank you for the invitation. It was, it was my pleasure. Take care. Thank you.